If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Move Your Mind. My name is Nick Brax, and this is a podcast where we have real conversations with real people and give real advice. Drug addiction is a disease that can rob people of everything. Imagine being in a position where you've lost your relationships, your family, your work, and all hope for a future. Imagine then turning that around and not only recovering, but building a recovery centre and helping people all over the world with addiction and mental health. Ryan Hassan is the founder of the Centre for Healing. He's an addiction expert, podcast host, and therapist, and I've known him for a number of years. You can find out more about Move Your Mind by going to moveyourmind.me or you can purchase the Move Your Mind book at nickbrax.com slash book. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I don't think we've talked for, I don't know, four or five years or it's been a while, but it is, I always say this, but the best part about doing the podcast is you reconnect and connect with so many different people and I'm really looking forward to, you know, being able to catch up with you over over this uh, interview, mate. Me too, mate. Thanks for having me on, Nick. Yeah, it has been a few years. Time's gotten weird the last couple of years, hasn't it? You know, with all that's happening with the pandemic and lockdowns and all that. I was talking to Melissa, my partner, yesterday, and it's like, yeah, time's strange. Like, we'll think about something that happened a few months ago and it feels like a few years ago, but then all something happened a few years ago and we're like, oh, that feels like a few months ago. It's all a bit mixed up at the minute. Completely. Oh, it's confusing. Like I was thinking back to something from, I think, two years ago the other day, and I, I, I thought my brain was, you know, processing it as if it was like a few months ago. And it, it, like, like you said, everything's like been meshed into one thing. And yeah, it's hard to keep track. It certainly is, <laughs> so, mate. But um, congratulations on the book, by the way. Thank you, mate. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's been uh, good to get that out there. And uh, yeah, virtually launching it from over here. So um, yeah, another another sort of bit of content to get out into the world it's awesome so um before we go into it can we we normally get the um guests to just give an overview on your background and what you do how you came to where you are do you mind just giving a bit of an overview yeah absolutely so right now i run a a business called the center for healing i run that with my partner melissa we've been doing that for the past i think six years uh now so you know we were an, an outpatient center located in Melbourne, where we were dealing with all sorts of people who were coming in with drug addiction, alcoholism, depression, anxiety, bipolar, stress, um, you know, all all sorts of myriad of things. And we were treating clients uh, holistically and naturally. The backbone of what we uh, did then and still do now is treat people's trauma. And we have a really big passion around, you know, educating people around trauma and helping people be able to heal from their trauma, which, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this in the show, which really manifests as so many issues when it comes to mental health addiction and that kind of thing that we run into uh, in our life. So that's sort of, and there's a lot to go into there, but my my backstory, you know, I used to be a tradesman, um, you know, funnily enough, so big career change. So the reason for a change of career, not was because I just decided, hey, I want to not be a tradie and I want to work in mental health. I kind of 
had my own uh, breakdown, you know, and breakthrough, you know, to sort of give you the, the backstory, I probably started to notice feelings of anxiety around the age of 10. I remember being in kind of grade three or four at school. I never would have had this language back then and being like, oh, I'm feeling anxiety. None of that kind of stuff. Um, but I just knew I had this inner feeling of kind of uh, dread. You know, it started in social situations, started to bleed into all areas of school, then sport, um, which I loved, you know, sabotage my sporting career because I would get so anxious, you know, before a footy game or cricket game. And um, this feeling was very much internalized. You know, we, you know, back then, you know, most households didn't have this emotional awareness where we would sit down at dinner at night and just talk about, hey, how are we feeling internally? What's happening emotionally? You know, it was all about, you know, how we're going at school, grades, are we captain of the footy team? Are we playing this week? Do we win? You know, all of this achievement kind of stuff. So I really internalized a lot of these feelings of dread and anxiety. And uh, funnily enough, that doesn't really help the situation. It makes it worse. So this kind of you know, I used to feel like it was a gremlin inside of me it was getting bigger as the months and years progressed. And, um, you know, I got to high school age and I found alcohol like most people do. And I thought to myself, hey, this, this liquid here, it makes that gremlin inside me quieten down a bit for an amount of time. Um, even though, you know, the next day that gremlin would be back and only be a little bit of interest attached, it worked for that short amount of time. So I started drinking you know, binge drinking on the weekends very, very heavily. And that's also a culture in Australia and other areas of the world. So it was very easy to fall into. Um, so, yeah, drinking a lot and escaping, stopping football, cricket, all of that sporting stuff, not paying too much attention at school, um, just trying to mitigate this, this feeling that I had inside of, of unease and, and dread. It got to the point where there was this kind of feeling like you felt like around every corner someone or something was going to jump out at you. You know, and even though that never actually happened, that feeling is very, very real, that fear um, that, that, that keeps feeding off itself. Um, I got to the age of 20 when I started taking illicit drugs. It was on my 20th birthday. I started taking ecstasy and speed. And I thought, wow, if this liquid over here helped dull that fear down, these drugs over here are making it disappear completely. Right. And all of a sudden I would go out and take these drugs and I would feel incredibly open. You know, I would feel incredibly connected, you know, to other people. I would feel, I often remember now looking back, I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Like I never had any emotional awareness or anything back then, but I love kind of looking back and putting pieces together. But I remember sometimes I would take these drugs and I would literally say to myself out aloud or internally, oh, this is me. Like I finally feel like myself. Mm -hmm. um, and once again, it's interesting looking back. I remember when I first started taking ecstasy and I would have these feelings and I never thought too deeply about it at the time, but I would obviously go out with groups of friends who would be doing the same thing. And I would look at them and they would go out and they would, you know, take these drugs, you know, drink, whatever it was, and they would have a bit of fun and then not really think about it or do it for maybe a few months. And maybe someone else's, there was a birthday or a celebration and they might do it again. Whereas for me, the moment that I started taking those drugs, I said to myself, I'm going to do this as much as possible for the foreseeable future. And it was weird because we were taking the exact same drug but it was having this different effect. Once again, I didn't have the, the knowledge or the understanding to jump too much into that at the time. But looking back with all the knowledge I have now, it was really pulling me out of a much deeper pit, you know, whereas other people had a, a much more healthier baseline level of their um, emotions. I was just in this pit with this fear happening all the time and it was able to lift me out. So no wonder I go back to it. And this is why, you know, I'm so passionate about educating people around addiction and addiction isn't about the drug at all, yeah. you know, because 
you know, research tells us that of anyone who takes uh, illicit drugs, around 10 to 20% will develop some sort of dependence or addiction, which means that 80 to 90% won't, which is the vast majority. And even drugs, you might say, well, heroin and methamphetamine, that must be different. It's not. It's still those same numbers. So the question is, what makes that 10 to 20% susceptible to a dependence or an addiction. It's because they're in too much emotional pain and emotional distress, and it's helping them, you know, it's the only solution that, that we have to our problem. So I went through this period in my 20s where I would call myself a, a functional drug addict in that I was able to hold down a job. Um, I was wonderful at wearing a mask. I was wonderful at making other people go, wow, he's doing great. <laughs> Look how happy he is, you know. I met a girl, I fell in love, we got the house, the mortgage, the dog, I was, like I said, a tradesman earning really, really good money. But on the weekends, I was blowing every cent of that money on drugs and alcohol. I was, you know, a zombie at work for the first couple of days of the week. Um, you know, people would come to me for advice on their life. And I would be great at giving other people advice, but I certainly couldn't give myself advice or, or listen to that advice um, and embody it. You know, I would always think to myself, people would come with their problems and then I would think, they'd ask me, like, how are you? And I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Classic. And I'll think to myself, I'll deal with my stuff later on. As soon as I had those quiet moments alone, all of this negative emotion, this energy would start to come up in my body. And I'll think, don't like this. Quick, let me escape. And so that's when drugs, alcohol, even gym was a, um, an addiction for me at the time. You know, I still go to the gym now. I love moving my body. It's great for my mental and physical health. But at a time, it was a real addiction, you know, which means that Anything can be an addiction. It's, it's our relationship to, to, to that thing. Um, I had a marriage breakdown um, after this period, and that was where I went from, I say, functional drug addiction to really dysfunctional, really fast. Yeah. So, you know, I started using methamphetamine and GHB every single day in, in higher and higher amounts. I ran through whatever money I had really quickly, so I started dealing drugs to support my habit, which is what 90 nine percent of, of people dealing drugs do and um that led to a lifestyle of just my, my days consisted of it was a simple life it wasn't easy but it was simple buying selling and using drugs that was it that was my day you know i was living in a house um where you know no one really slept people were coming and going all the time um i would be awake for four or five days at a time then sleep for about 25 to 30 hours wake up do it all again um, one time I was awake for seven days. I was literally awake for a week. Um, I've got a little, a little toddler now. I remember when he was a newborn, I'd like, you know, have one night of crappy sleep and I'm like barely able to cope the next day. And I'm like, man, <laughs> I survived on seven days of no sleep. It's incredible what the human body it's can insane. do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I went through this. I got in trouble with the law. I was arrested a couple of times, you know, um, in remand in prison. Like one moment I had, I remember sort of sitting in this, concrete cell by myself no windows just white concrete and a little toilet and i was just looking at this wall i started to withdraw from the drugs i've been using every day and i'm thinking how the hell did i end up here you know how the hell did this kid who had a, a loving parents you know middle class upbringing in the eastern suburbs of melbourne um seemingly had you know most opportunities you could have how did i end up here and um yeah, it was, it was a tough life. It really, really was. And I was just very, very fortunate that when I kind of lost everything, lost everything material, 
You know, the, the one of the times I got arrested, I literally, all the money, drugs, everything, I'd written off my car because I overdosed at the wheel. Thank God no one else was, was hurt. So I'd lost everything material. So I was kind of at a place of desperation where I wanted to get help. And I didn't quite know what to do because I'd never reached out for help before. I hated asking for help. <laughs> that was a big block of mine. So I was like, what do, what do drug addicts do when they want help? Well, they, they go to rehab, right? So I started Googling rehab. You know, and I'm like, okay, there seems to be private and public. Private rehabs, like 30 or 40 grand. I certainly don't have that kind of money and I'm not going to put that on my parents. And um, public rehab was a six-month waiting list uh, at the time in Victoria. And I, at that point, I was like, I'm going to be dead in six months. There's just, there's no way. So I ended up doing this home-based detox through a government company where you kind of get some support from a a nurse, a care and recovery worker, a doctor, they set you up with appointments and stuff, but you do it from home, um, which I was able to get clean for 12 days. Um, any person struggling with addiction knows the battle isn't stopping using, it's staying stopped. You know, I'd gone through detox and withdrawal, fuck, 100 times, <laughs> you know. So yeah. well, it, it, it's, it's about, yeah. you know, that that's not, and a lot of society don't understand that. They're like, oh, if they just stop drinking or stop the drug, they'll be fine. But if we don't address the underlying reasons why, we'll invariably go back to it yeah? or we'll switch, we'll switch up our, our vice. So I, I relapsed after 12 days and that was sort of the most important moment of my life. You know, I ended up quite synchronously um, meeting with a woman who's now my partner. That's a whole nother story. I ended up in her office one day. She was a therapist. I spent three hours in her office and we spoke about drugs for less than five minutes, maybe two minutes. And the rest were unpacking all of this emotional baggage and this emotional trauma that I didn't know that I had um, that was in my system from, from when I was a very young kid. And it was, I had this just incredible experience where I, I realized I'm not who I thought I was. I'm not my behaviors. I'm not my patterns. I'm not my beliefs. I'm not the thoughts that I have, these opinions about myself. You know, I uncovered that I, I not only didn't love myself or like myself, I fucking hated who I was as a human being. And I'd, I'd hated myself, not just from my addiction, but from when I was a kid, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I had a, a belief like a lot of men do, I'm sure you hear, Nick, like, you know, that I can't be vulnerable. And this is why when I talk about wearing a mask, so that was from a deeply held belief that I can't be vulnerable. I can't see anybody else. I can't let them see me struggle. So that was why I would put on that brave face and that smile all the time, which is incredibly unhealthy. I hadn't cried at this point for about 15 years, wow. which is really unhealthy. So when yeah. I started to unpack this stuff, oof, I started, imagine 15 years of tears starting to come out. It, yeah. was, it was incredible, you know, and, you know, I cry all the bloody time now. But, um, you know, so I had this incredible experience where who I thought I was really fell away. You know, I'm not my addiction. I'm not my thoughts, all of that. And um, I just knew from that point, you know, I've got more work to do at this point, but I know that I don't need drugs to survive. Yeah. Because that's yeah. what it feels like. It's like I cannot live without taking massive amounts of methamphetamine and GHB every day. This is how yeah. an, an addict feels. But I knew yeah. that, that that wasn't what I needed anymore. So that started this process of detoxing once again, this time for good, and then going and really unpacking and working on myself. I got really curious at this point. I'm like, man, what else have I got going on in here that, I, that yeah. I've neglected? Because me, like a lot of people, I spent my time up in my mind, yeah? yeah, just just constantly cognizing my experience of life, trying to interpret, understand everything and neglecting what was happening in my heart and my body, which is where all of our you know emotions are, are really held. And so I started unpacking, unpacking. I was 
having these incredible experiences. And then I had the, the vision or the epiphany that I was meant to open up a center and help people who were going through what I went through or something similar. And that sort of, you know, sparked something inside of me. Um, I started studying, you know, a lot, a lot of different modalities, you know, I went down the traditional route and then kind of veered away from that because, um, you know, that's got its place, you know, the traditional route and talk therapy, but I felt really drawn to helping people on a much deeper level, you know, which is kind of my experience and what I went through. So that led to a lot of study, a lot of reading, and then um, eventually opening up at the Centre for Healing, like I said, about six or so years ago. Um, and I did that with uh, Melissa. She wasn't my partner at the time, um, but we um, started that business. We had sort of no money, no backing. We were just passionate. We were fired up. <laughs> and um, we're like, look, if we start this, well, we didn't have money for the first um, month's rent of the office. So like, let's just start. If, if it doesn't work for people, then we'll just go out of business like real quick. If yeah. people do, you know, get results and do really well, then we'll be able to stay in business, you know, grow and help more people. And so we're lucky enough that it worked out to be the latter, you know, and people were really, really digging it. And, um, you know, that led us to running that outpatient clinic. You know, we moved online at the end of 2019. Right now we're more in the education space, so really educating people about mental health, addiction and trauma. Um, also practitioner training. So we're helping a lot of other therapists and people that want to get into this field start to learn some modalities to help people with trauma. And, um, you know, we've had, I checked the other day, we've had, I think, about 4,000 just over students um, go through one or more of our courses in the last 18 months. And, um, yeah, it's been quite the journey. I've had a baby along the way and, and all of that kind of stuff. So that's the, that's the condensed yeah. version. Well, mate, it's, yeah, thank you for giving me the condensed version because there's a lot in the condensed version and it's, um, it's no, it's pretty powerful. And I think there's just, there's too many things within what you just said there to, you know, discuss in this, in this podcast, but so many, you know, really powerful things in your story. And, you know, one of the main things, I just think it's amazing, you know, you as a guy being able to talk so openly and, you know, vulnerably about that. And that's what we need more in the world because, the, as you were saying, the reason a lot of this stuff happens is we're not taught at a young age how to identify that, how to understand it. You know, we don't have that education. And, you know, my story was very similar and I had, you know, addiction to sport and then uh, it led to, you know, alcohol and uh, using that to escape things and getting in trouble and, yeah, but not not knowing, you know, why or how to, how to sort of deal with it. And it's, a, it's such a common thing. And the more that you talk about it, the more you realize how many people, you know, go through similar experiences. So I think, you know, it's amazing that you can talk about it and, you know, what you've built it into. It's such a good story and such a powerful story for anyone listening to it. But um, if we look at, you know, addiction, as you were saying, the I think that, and I, I mean, I don't specifically work in that area, but from what I've seen, there's just simply not enough mainstream education on addiction. I guess people often look at addiction as drugs or alcohol or these, you know, certain categories, but addiction could be absolutely anything. And um, is that one of the, I guess, with you, the work you're doing, that's one of the things you've seen, I guess, that um, maybe, you know, there are way outlets out there to deal with the surface level of, okay, how do we, you know, put a bandaid on this and sort of, yeah. you know, get this person through it. But people, we're not going into, um breaking down what's actually happened for this person to behave in this way and also not looking at it in a broad enough sense of someone could be addicted to work to mask the exact same pain that an ice addict is is using um 
and we're not talked about it. And, and, and then we're very quick to sort of shame people and judge people. And, you know, I think it's just there literally can't be enough education and awareness about that area because it's just, you know, so far to go. But, yeah, is that some of the stuff that, you know, you're, you're educating people on? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just what you said about vulnerability as well. It's just an important point. I think when, when we can become vulnerable, it gives other people permission to be vulnerable as well. And, yep. you know, for God, like you and me, we've been talking about <clears throat> this stuff for years. So it's kind of second nature. And when someone says, oh, you're being vulnerable, I'm like, am I? Like, I don't know. I'm just talking. But, you know, when we start to do that, it really starts to bring down other people's walls. And you'll find that, yeah, if people listening and listen to my story, they can go, well, I haven't had issues with, you know, methamphetamine, GHB, but I can identify with that in a different area. Because as humans, we go through these themes, you know, we're much more, we're having a unique experience, but we go through these themes together. And one of them is addiction. You know, it's a, it's a spectrum. It's not an on or off switch. We love as a society with, you spoke about band-aids and this symptom management and labeling people. And it has its place, but it's become the real dominant um, way to look at these issues. And so we want to say, well, this person has depression or they don't. This person has an addiction or they don't, like it's an on-off switch, but we're all on that spectrum, you know. Mm -hmm. I talk about it. We all have that compulsion to escape, okay? That's what addiction is. It's this pull, this compulsion to escape from whatever experience we're having right now, yeah? And it's this escape from ourselves because, like, if I have a friend, like, you know, let's say we're hanging out, Nick, and I'm an asshole, and you're like, fucking hell, Ryan, he's annoying me so much. It's like, you can leave. <laughs> you can yeah, tell me to get yeah. out of your house or you can leave my house. Like, you can leave. If I hate myself, I can't get away from myself. So the only way that I can do that is I need to change my consciousness in some way. And we can use drugs, alcohol, gambling, shopping, sex, food, work, codependent relationships. It's the same compulsion. Um, it's really important what yeah. you said about work because I, I would see them all the time. I still do. It's like I can have a heroin addict come in off the street and a highly successful CEO coming in because he's bloody stressed to the eyeballs doing cocaine all the time, right? One is socially celebrated. One is socially stigmatized, but it's the exact same compulsion acting out in both of them. They just have a different coping mechanism that is, you know, active for them. You know, someone found heroin work, someone found working 80-hour weeks, not being present for the family, um, running into health issues because of stress all the time. But that person gets looked at by society and goes, oh, what a go-getter. Oh, did you get that promotion? How much money are you making? So it's like this positive reinforcement of this really, you know, addictive nature. And it might be important to, you know, give a, a definition for people listening. So the best definition I've come across in terms of addiction is any behavior. So right there, we're like not just talking about drugs and alcohol any behavior that we find craving in doing, relief in once we do it, but despite it having negative consequences in other areas of our life, we are unable to stop. So that can be anything. So think about, you know, uh, you know, gambling, right? So gambling is a big one, gambling addiction. So let's say that I like to gamble, okay? And I say, well, I'm going to set aside, you know, $50 and each Saturday I'm going to have a bet on the horses and I do that and I enjoy it, right? And maybe I do think about it during the week and look forward to it. So there's a craving to do it. But it's not having negative consequences in other areas of my life. I'm not addicted. Let's say that starts to get a little bit out of control, that behavior, and that money creeps up and up and I'm using my credit card. And then all of a sudden, um, I can't send my son to his school camp this year because I've spent that money on gambling. Now I can really start to define that as an addiction because it's having negative consequences in other areas of my life. But if I'm still undertaking it, then I have to look at, you know, at possibly having a problem there. 
But yeah, it's, it's anything, totally. you know, like the, the, that <clears throat> compulsion. This is why people switch addiction so much. If we don't deal with that underlying pain and that driver, then yeah, people might, you know, go and get clean from drugs. They'll go to a detox or a rehab facility, come back to life and they stay away from that drug. But now they're drinking heaps. Um, now they become over controlling and overbearing in a relationship. They're smoking cigarettes all the time. Um, totally. They start, they start video gaming compulsively and that's all they're doing. And so we're kind of, we switch it. Yeah. And that's not to say, you know, if we switch from, let's say, a heroin addiction to a gym addiction, that's going to have less negative consequences um, on my life. But if we really want to be free from addiction, we need to address that underlying compulsion to escape and, and where that comes from. Absolutely. And yeah, no, I, I, and I love, I love the way you describe that. I think for anyone listening, you know, that will, that makes it very clear and easy to understand the way you've, you, you've described that part of it. Um, how, how big, you know, and you're talking about, you know, if people are working like an 80 hour work week and they're achieving that's, that's applauded and that's actually seen. And I, and I'm seeing that I'm, I'm in New York at the moment and I'm, I've met a lot of people where, you know, it's probably the mecca for making money and status and all of a lot of, you know, height of capitalism and all of those values that have stemmed from the US, I guess. Um, you see it firsthand and these people, you know, I've met so many of them and you can tell that there's like sort of they're almost nothing behind the eyes and they're just projecting and talking about status and this and needing, you know, what's next, blah, 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 blah. But these are people that are you know, seen as highly successful. So even what, what I've sort of observed in that behaviour is even if they might deep down know some of their behaviour is a bit negative, they think, well, I'm successful, doesn't matter, you know, I'm like, why would I change anything? Because I'm doing all the right things and they feel like they're bulletproof and it can actually almost become a negative if you, it's going to prevent you even, you know, for, further from actually doing the work to change. Um but yeah, I think that's a societal thing. It's yeah, it's yeah, just such yeah. A, a big issue. Yeah, so that they're the ones who they they won't want any help until they eventually have a breakdown. And that's like classic, yeah. you know, you call it you know, midlife crisis, whatever it is. But it's kind of this point where people who they achieve all the material success and what society told them would make them happy, and they do it all, and then they sit there one day and go, "I'm not happy." And it's like we've been sold this false promise. You know, yeah. it's like we, we were told, well, if you get the, the the money and the cars and the big house and the women and all of that kind of stuff, then you, you've made it, you know, and the ego and the ego does get these little hits when you get those things. It goes, yeah, I'm making it, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. But invariably, it's not satisfying. You know, it's like um, the, the analogy of, of the hungry ghosts where it just keeps feeding itself and they've got these big bellies, but nothing actually satisfies yeah. that hunger. And so, and so yeah. those people, they hit a certain age. And um, one thing I'm seeing actually the last few years are people are hitting that age a bit earlier, whereas maybe before right. we mid 40s, maybe even 50s. Now people in their 30s and even late 20s are kind of asking these deeper questions where it's like, what the hell am I doing all this for? You know, this, yeah. this was all meant to make me happy, but I'm miserable as shit. <laughs> all right. It's, like yeah. we, it's at some point they get really honest with themselves and realize they were, you know, it's like the classic one when they say you're climbing the ladder of success and you get to the top and you're like, I'm on the wrong fucking building. <laughs> you know, yeah, what did I spend yeah, all this time yeah. climbing for? And so yeah. people are asking a lot of those questions. And But but when people are in it, very hard um, to tell people like, yeah, I don't know if you're on the right path here. You're looking after your mental health. Like, you know, what's happening emotionally? Emotionally, look at my bank account. I'm doing great. 
Okay. In that case, we kind of just wait. <laughs> well, you because you can't do anything, can you? And I mean, that's a good point. Again, for anyone listening, it's like you you can sort of offer your support or your own opinion, but you can't really, you know, if someone's not ready to change or listen, you can't force an opinion on them. If anything, that'll probably push them further the other way. It's like a, you know, a, an apple on the apple tree. And and that apple at some point it will ripen. And then at some point it will fall from the tree when it's ready. And that's yeah. the timing piece. And a lot of people, when it comes to, you know, addictions, mental health and everything, they want to go and just rip that apple off the tree and make someone see thing a dif- see things a different way or make somebody change. And um, we can't do that. Someone can only decide they want to change themselves. Now, to get people to that position sooner, um, I believe as a society we're moving in the right direction because as a whole people are understanding, you know, that we have mental health. If you've got a body, you've got physical health, you've got a mind, you've got mental health. People are understanding that and people are starting to pay a little bit more attention to what's happening internally, just not what they've got externally. So in that case, people, yeah. that's why I think people that I'm seeing with the you know work and materialism are now having those breakdowns a little bit earlier because they're becoming aware that life, life isn't about what I've got. It's about what's happening in here. It's about my state of being. You know, am I am I constantly in fear that I don't have enough? Am I constantly trying to get more, 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 or am I pouring love and joy out of my heart? Like, what's going on? And you know, Pete, you yeah. can be you can be you know broke, destitute, you know, sitting in a gutter, but you can have love and joy pouring out of your heart. I want to be that guy than than the millionaire with all the cars and everything who's in fear and greed. Absolutely, you know, it's it's clear, and and you see, you know, you see that the person that's got nothing but has that love and joy coming out of them, they're, they're genuinely happy because you can't, you know, it comes from within and it's, it's crazy. But um, what, what, what's your view on things like, you know, social media, mass media consumption, a lot of these things that are happening through technology that are breeding a lot of negativity. I mean, do you feel like that side of it is causing a whole nother problem in itself and disconnecting people and, you know, creating a different value system altogether as well? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. You know, our, our diet isn't just what we eat and drink. You know, our diet's the information, the stimulus that we take in through our senses. And, yeah. you know, a lot of social media and, and mainstream media is like eating, God, Maccas and KFC multiple times a day <laughs> for your yeah. mind and your emotions, you know. A lot of – so when we think about, you know, news and media, they're – like literally using our fear mechanism to grab our attention because that's what it does. Like when we have that fear mechanism in play, we pay attention because our survival physiology, it rules everything in our life. You know, we have this survival mechanism like, you know, if I try and hold my breath and hold my breath until I die, I can't do it. It's like if I put my head underwater and try and drown myself, I can't do it. The survival mechanism will, will pull me back up every single time. So what happens, this same survival mechanism is in play when we watch news because if I get fear, 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 I pay attention. And that's what, you know, news wants eyeballs on the TV for advertising dollars, you know. Um, social media is another beast altogether. I mean, the whole idea of notifications is to play on the dopamine circuits in our brain of motivation and reward. That's why we're constantly, oh, I've got three notifications, let me check them off. Oh, I've got two over here, let me check them off. And that's really giving us 
a problem with our dopamine circuitry. Like dopamine is a neurotransmitter for, for motivation. Um, it's what makes us move. It makes us try and um, partake in more dopamine. And um, the phone is just a dopamine hit every single time. And it's and what happens, it's like with a drug. You know, there's, there's a, a sense of satisfaction and a sense of reward early on, but that diminishes over time, every single time. And it becomes inherently more satisfying. You know, in the end, I was taking so much goddamn methamphetamine I was like, I needed to have it just to survive. It wasn't pleasurable, but I needed it. It was just like, I just got to keep doing it. I got to keep doing it. Yeah. And um, and it's like that chasing the dragon analogy. And we're doing that with the phone. That's why we, when we check the phone, it's like, it's inherently unsatisfying. You know, I remember I have these breaks from the phones to try and reset, you know, that, that circuitry. And so I might take a week, no, no social media, no email, you know, none of that stuff. And it's so funny because after the week, I'll kind of be like, oh, I'm getting back on. All right, what did I miss? What did I miss? And I spend about half an hour and I'm like, I missed fucking nothing. Yeah, like, yeah. Literally, I missed nothing. Whereas I would have checked multiple times a day during that week and it would have felt, I would have felt like I had to do that because there was something out there that I was meant to get. So, yeah, the, it's once again, that when I, if I'm sitting here and I feel the need to go and reach for my phone, that's that compulsion to escape again. Yeah, it's a more yeah. that's a more subtle level than a hard drug or alcohol, but that's the same mechanism in play. I need to reach for it. So yeah, I think news and phones, oh my God, massive impact. Thank you so much for supporting Move Your Mind. We're expanding the offerings of the organization and we're tailoring everything we do to suit you guys and to try and answer to all of your needs and the questions that you send in. The book is available globally. You can find all of the links at nickbrax.com slash book. And we've just released the Move Your Mind community. We've currently got a men's community group, a women's community group, a general group. We're going to be lo- loading up other groups. And you can find all of the links at moveyourmind.me. This group's been created based on the needs of what we've heard and learnt throughout running Move Your Mind. And we have live events. We've got courses. We've got huge amounts of value, the ability to share information, share ideas, work in groups together to to grow and share your learnings, to learn about different topics. You get email reminders. There's a whole lot of features in there. We're constantly updating it and we're so excited to share it with you. You can find all of the information about it at moveyourmind.me. Yeah, it's it's kind of terrifying because it's like something, it's so socially acceptable that, you know, it's like who's going to you know, people are going to justify it to themselves and say that, well, okay, it might be a problem, but everyone's doing it. So I'm not changing it. It's there. It's part of yeah. life. So it's, it's, it's so much up to the individual to, you know, empower themselves to make that change or it's just not going to happen. So it's, it's like, like being at a party and like, so let's say that you've decided that, you know, you know, I'm, I'm drinking, it might be a little bit too much. Like I need to take, you know, a bit of time off just to test my relationship with that substance. But then you go somewhere and you weren't expecting it, but everybody else in the group is having a drink. Yeah. And so all of a sudden it's like, wow, everyone else is doing it. I don't want to feel left out. And then bang, you're in. And then you have some. Then you go home and drink more, you know. But it's like this, this, this social, you know, pressure that we feel with these certain behaviours. And we do. We have to take real personal responsibility um, for that. Absolutely. Um, and what, what would be some simple techniques people can do with, you know, what you're talking about, I guess, you know, it's too probably too hard to go in depth on how can we really, you know, go to the core and work these things out. But if people are interested to start exploring that and you think, okay, I really want to look at why am I behaving in this way? What's causing me to do this? You know, what's a first step someone can take to start digging, digging deeper into that? 
the first step with any change is awareness. You can't change what you're not aware of. Um, so it's always important for people to become aware. Let's say that um, I smoke cigarettes, you know, multiple a day. And then it's just like we do it very unconsciously, you know, it becomes this habit where we just we do it I and mean, it doesn't require any real conscious thought. And then we started to say, well, whenever I go out for a cigarette, I'm just going to be a very aware that I'm having a cigarette and I can ask myself, I wonder why I'm having this cigarette, even while you're having it. And we can do that with any behavior. And then we can start to, if we want, we can start to test our relationship with whatever the substance or behavior is. And we can start to take a little bit of time off. And then if we find that we can't do that, we just become aware and conscious of that. So if I said I wasn't going to drink for a week, but it's Wednesday and I'm having a drink. Okay, that's interesting. I wonder why that was, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And if we can't, then it's like, okay, well, I've got some underlying drivers happening here that, that are pushing me to escape. You know, if you think about, I like to think about it as like um, it's tiered. So there's three tiers. The top tier is the behavior that we, you know, we want to change and call it a deal. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Whatever you want, but the behavior is kind of on top. It's kind of a symptom of what's happening on these deeper levels. Now, society you know, looks at that addiction and goes, well, let's treat that very surface level. You know, um, then underneath that, we have this compulsion to escape, okay, which I'm talking about, which is like a dial. You know, if it's very low, then we, we have no trouble staying away from certain behaviors because I don't have that pull to get away. But if that dial gets down this end, very hard to override that. And I'll start to undertake in those behaviors. Underneath that is this underlying emotional pain, emotional distress, this unease. This, um, I, would, I would call it trauma. People have different definitions for that word. The way I define it, we've all got trauma. Once again, spectrum. We've all got it, this emotional distress. And so the more of that we have going on, the higher the compulsion to escape is, the more we undertake in these behaviours. So if people are having real trouble even testing a relationship with a behaviour, then it's, it's very important to start to reach out to a professional who can start to unpack that stuff because that then it gets very individual around that trauma. And, you know, that trauma can be... The classic ideas of trauma is, is sexual abuse, physical abuse, veterans who've been away at war, a car crash, a classic classic kind of PTSD symptom, which it is. But it's also, you know, developmental trauma, you know, which could be, you know, certain circumstances we went through in our younger years where maybe we weren't, we weren't allowed to be angry and that emotion got shut down. So I've got all this stewed up anger in my system. Um, maybe I wasn't allowed to cry. Maybe I was left to cry a lot. Maybe my parents split up. Like, there's so many different things going on. Maybe I was bullied at school and I haven't actually been able to process that. Um, all of that kind of stuff, it gets very, very individual at that point. But the first step is becoming aware and then trying to test our relationship with whatever it is. I still try and do it with coffee because I love coffee. I was having one just before we jumped on. But I'll try and, you know, test my relationship, have a month off every here, here and there. And it's, just, it's an interesting exercise because I still notice that pull, you know, even... I said I'm going to have a month, but after a week, I'm like, oh, but it's been a week. It's all right. Your adenosine receptors have reset. Go and get one. I know it's like a very yeah. physical 
pull, you know, and it's and it's it's very much in the body. You know, we need to maintain a real bodily awareness because we, like I said, we're obsessed with the thoughts, but the thoughts actually sprout from the sensations in the body. The thoughts try and justify what the body is trying to pull us towards. You know, we can start to also look at our our, our beliefs that we have. You know, our beliefs really dictate our reality. We, we filter our reality through our beliefs. Um, we've all got our own individual set. That's why we're all a bit different. You know, that's why yeah. when two people are arguing, it's not so much two people arguing, it's two beliefs just bumping up against each other. So a lot of people who struggle with these addictive behaviours and, and mental illness have a lot of beliefs going on. They strongly believe that I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy of love. I don't love myself. Life is hard. I need approval. I need validation. I don't trust men. I don't trust women. I don't trust myself. It's not safe to relax. All of these things. So these deeply held beliefs. And you can even start to, we can even start to play with those. And I get clients sometimes to just say some of those beliefs internally and just see how they land for them. So if I get clients to sit here and say, just, just in your own mind, just say, I'm, I'm worthy of love. And you get a real feeling as to whether that's true for you or not. And, and so many clients who struggle with this stuff, I'll say, I'm worthy of love. And their whole body's like, no, you're not. No, you're not. All of these beliefs inherently, imagine if they're the branches of a tree, the trunk of that tree is there's something wrong with me as a human being. There's yeah. something inherently wrong. I'm fucked up. I hear that all the time, right? Yeah. So there's something inherently wrong with me as a human. So a part of the healing process, not just with addiction, but I'm talking mental health issues, you know, behavioral stuff, yeah. is having someone come to the realization that there's absolutely nothing wrong with them as a human being. Even if currently they're using drugs or doing something socially unacceptable, not in inverted commas, there's nothing wrong with them as a human. As soon as someone realizes that, everything starts oh. to relax. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's this huge relief. And then you can, and then you can have the freedom to explore it and start working on all of the things that, you know, you've worded so, so clearly and so well in um, your description of it. So it's, it, but it, it is such a complicated thing. And I think, I mean, I feel like until there's not going to be, you know, mainstream societal change in this until we can from, you know, early, early age, you know, have, have this stuff embedded in in schooling. I mean, because, you know, the only way we're going to learn it long-term is through our parents, but, you know, that's got to change through schooling so the next generation can pass it on and break that cycle. But, I, you know, that's what I really believe. Um, it's a slow I guess, process. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I spoke about, you know, I was talking about that <clears throat> individual beliefs, right? And individual yep. beliefs can actually change really fast. Um, some take more time, but they can change quick, even if we've had them for decades. But then we have these group beliefs, which is what the, the collective or our culture believes. And, you know, yeah. if we're, we're, we're kind of born into a, we're born into a soup of these, of these beliefs that we just start to pick up. So someone who, you know, hasn't directly experienced addiction or been with a close loved one who has, they've got to pick up on a group belief about it. Um, yeah. And so that, that belief, it's changing, but it's really slow. So like the, the, the group belief, you know, many years ago, some sections still have this belief is that addiction's are a choice. It's a moral failing. You made a stupid choice and now you've got these consequences, right? Which is where all the stigma and now all the guilt and shame comes from. Like, my God, so much of the work I do is helping people deal with this guilt and shame because anyone with these addictive behaviors, a lot of people with, with mental illness, they have so much guilt and shame going on in their system, which actually reinforces the behaviors that they're doing as well. Um, so it's like a choice. And then all of a sudden we're kind of at this phase now where a lot of society sees it as a disease. 
Um, I don't agree with that, but it's a way better option than, a, than the choice one. <laughs> but the judicial yeah. system still sees it as a choice. And I went through the judicial system where you're really made to be, feel like a piece of shit. Oh, you were, you were using and dealing drugs like, you know, I had judges, magistrates point at me saying you're an idiot, you know, you're a bad human, all that kind of stuff, um, which reinforces as a culture, you know, these addictive behaviours. They're creating more of the problem that they're trying to solve, basically. Exactly. Then we have the exactly. disease model, which is much better, which is well, the way the medical industry views it now, which is great because it actually opens people up to treatment. It also opens up that that industry to more funding when it's looked at as a disease or a medical issue. But I think, you know, we're starting to move towards understanding that a lot of these issues are coping mechanisms for deep-seated emotional pain. And that when we start to really, when we start to understand that, then all of a sudden we get around people who are struggling, yeah, as opposed to going, there's something wrong with you. You know, you need to be fixed. That's a classic. I, I you know, we do a course for families of, of addiction because myself and a colleague, um, Matt Nettleton, we, we would speak to families all the time. And it's like, they need to go away and get fixed and come back. It's like, we're not a car. You know, yeah. we kind of send it to them again. Yeah. Like, you're involved in this as well. You know, we need to get around them. And a lot of the thing we're coming back to these kind of ancient traditions that we had as hunter-gatherer cultures that we've lost in this modern world. There's there's a tribe, I think it was in, in Africa. I use this analogy a bit, um, this story, sorry, because I, I love it. And it's like this tribe, and, and whenever a baby is going to be born into the tribe, the soothsayer or you know that the shaman of that tribe you know connects with with spirit and creates what they call a soul song and and each baby has their own soul songs everyone in the tribe has their own and so they teach the she teaches the the rest of the tribe that song and when the baby's born everyone's singing their soul song and then what happens as you know grow up into adolescence and adults and everything when someone in the tribe transgresses okay when they do something wrong they don't put them in a cage. They don't punish them. The whole tribe gets around them and performs a ceremony and sings their soul song to them to the remind them who they are because they've just got lost with who they are, okay? This is such a compassionate and connected way. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, I, I get goosebumps thinking about it because yeah. it's so different to right now, there's something wrong with you. We're going to lock you in a cage for a bit and take away your basic human rights, when people just need love and connection, which doesn't mean people get this mixed up because they're like, oh, so we're just going to condone all these, you know, violent behaviours. No, 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 you're getting mixed up. We don't condone a, condone a behaviour, but we remain compassionate and present for the human being and help them where we can. Exactly, mate. No, I, I love, I really love that, what you said. And I think, uh, and a lot of it comes from, you know, parenting as well, because we, you know, these are parents are the most influential people on us and in our developmental years. And they, they haven't often, they haven't been educated themselves and they're in pain and they haven't confronted things. And then it's this passed on trauma and these, you know, you don't, so it goes on and on. Um, and that can be really difficult because you, no matter what age you get to, it's, it, it's your parents, you know, you look up to them and you have that. So it's sort of severing that or changing that relationship to be able to then evolve yourself is a really tough process, but something that we often have to do. Oh, of course. Yeah. That's, I mean, that the, the vast majority yeah. of that early programming is obviously from our parents or caregivers and, you know, people can run into some issues when we start to, you know, bring up the past and work on these things. And then people want to go into this blame and go, Oh, fucking my parents fault. It's like, that doesn't help. 
that doesn't help yeah. either because we're all yeah. every human being on the planet is doing the absolute best that they can right with their yeah. current level of consciousness and awareness okay understanding that's it's really critical and so yeah. when we understand that we can sort of go okay there's some there's some things that i need to address these patterns that are going on for me but also for future generations. You know, that's why it's like you get really empowered, like knowing that I'm not just, you know, I'm still doing work on myself now. And it's like I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not changing for myself. I've got a boy upstairs now, Tommy, but I'm changing for him as well. So he he's not going to have to carry the burdens that I've had to. Now he'll have different burdens. I never we should never want a life without problems because that's not going to exist. Yeah. But ideally, our kids will have a different set of problems to deal with than we do. You know, otherwise, you know, like you said, these patterns get passed down through the genealogical line and these feelings of, you know, scarcity or lack or, you know, fear and anxiety, like they can be five, 10 generations old and they just keep getting passed down. So it's certainly yeah. important. But like I said, we're all doing the best we can. Like parents, parents in like the 80s and everything were told by healthcare professionals, if your baby's crying, just put them down because they're trying to manipulate you. And I'm like, like that's what yeah, they were told. It's crazy. So they were listening. Yeah, yeah. They were listening to advice and going, okay, that's what we're meant to do. We'll do it. We know now yeah. that's a horrible idea. <laughs> like if you <laughs> want to talk about, you know, a great way to traumatize and dysregulate someone's nervous system, do that to a baby. Um, yeah. So that's like we just we we start to understand things differently and move forward. And there's things that we're doing now that we'll look back on and go, I can't believe we did that, you know, but. We're, we're, I think we're moving in the right direction, Nick, slowly. And, and that's all we can do. You know, we can all only do our best and exactly and, and, you know, not hold resentment. Like you said, you know, it took me a while to realise that. I was always thinking, oh, I was, had resentment about certain things with my parents and I realised, hang on, these they've been so amazing in so many ways and the same way that they might struggle with things that I've started to grasp more, there's a million things that they would look at in me and have the same frustration and you know what? At the core, as long as everyone's got the right intention and you're doing it out of love, then what well, you can't, you know, you can't really do much more, can you? You just got to. You can't. Yeah, you can't. Really, that's all you can do. It's so important. Intention. You know what? Yeah. What is my intent? You know, that's that's sort of the, the part that we control, and you know, and we're we're flawed human beings. We're not perfect. You know, we're meant to yeah. stuff up and make mistakes. Yeah. But if our intention's pure, then we can never look back on something with regret um, or resentment. Yeah, resentment's a big one. Resentment. Resentment and blame just keep us stuck. You know, as soon as we get, we point at something else and go, that's the cause of my problems, I can't move forward because I'm yep. bound to this external. And this is like we're talking about, you know, with the materialism and getting all the cars and the money. It's like I'm looking externally to try yep. and solve a very internal problem where if we make it, you know, our own internal state that we're working on, then all of a sudden we're not we're not dependent on what's happening out here. We, we, Michael Singer puts it great. He goes, we actually free the world. We free other people in the world because we're not blaming, we're not clinging, we're not striving for anything out here. It's all in here. So we let them go and we, we work in here. Yeah, I love that, mate. That's a really good one. Um, so we we finish with sort of five quick questions. Before I go into all that, right. um, yeah, do you, do you have any things that you do daily, any daily sort of habits that help you that you stick to or, you know, anything in your own personal life yeah. that you can share? I... I movement, you know, is a big one, you know, I love yep. you know, whether it's the gym, walking, that kind of thing, playing with my boy at the park movement is important for me, you know, with my mental and emotional health. Um, I'm going a little bit away from 
sort of daily routines and everything. And I went down the rabbit hole. I would, you know, meditate religiously every day. I would go through breath work. I would, you know, visualizations, like all of this kind of stuff. And I think if it's a daily practice, it's just being incredibly sometimes brutally honest with myself at all times. Yeah. With that intention, you know, so I'm just, I'm, I'm very, very aware of why I'm doing things and where it's coming from. And even if that's really uncomfortable um, for me at times, I think that radical honesty is so important because we bullshit ourselves so easily (laughs) and we will justify our action. It's so easy. You know, I remember I'll just share this quick story. I remember a few years ago, it's the, the day I decided I need to stop listening to my mind and, and the thoughts that were going on. Because I remember I decided that, you know, I wasn't having any drinks and I wasn't drinking much at all. I might have a beer or two here or there, but I'm like, I'm not going to, you know, drink for a month. And it was a big week at the center, like busy clients in and out, like it was hectic. And, and then it was uh, worked all day Saturday and then Saturday night I was driving home. And I think the Kangas were playing footy that night. And so I was excited to sit on the couch and watch that. And I'm on the way home and the, the mind pops up and goes, oh, stop at the bottle shop, get some nice craft beers, you know, you deserve it. And I'm like, no, I just said I'm not going to have a drink. This is a debate with my mind. So I get yeah. home, sit on the couch, game's about 15 minutes away, and the mind just won't stop. It is just intense. And it, it, it's giving me like a bloody PhD dissertation on my whole life and why I deserve to go and have a couple of beers. <laughs> Maybe you helped that old lady across the road, you know, five years ago, blah, blah, blah. You never have any fun anymore. Like it's just badgering me, right? And so I kind of submitted to it. I'm like, oh, for God's sake, all right, I'll go down and get a six-pack of beer. I went and got this beer, got home, opened it, footy game was starting. I took one sip of beer and that exact same voice that told me to go and get the beer goes, I can't believe you're having a beer, you piece of shit. And I'm (laughs) like, I'm like, that's it. I'm not listening to this thing anymore because mm. it is it is totally. badgering me. So so for me, it's 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 being really honest. It's not listening to what's going on up here a lot of the time, and, and sort of trust what's going on in, in my heart. I yeah, no, I really love that, and thank you for sharing that story. And I think it's it's something that I've you know because I've always been really you know strict on these daily habits that I do, and it keeps me feeling grounded. But I, you know, started being more lenient on a lot of things for, yeah. for that same reason, because it becomes, then that becomes the new chore and they're, they're actually yeah. meant to be there to keep you healthy and look after you. And then it becomes, oh, I've got anxiety because I need to do this. And then it bleeds into that same psychology bleeds into everything you're doing. And so I think it's, it is, it's about that very fine line of, yes, I'm going to do things that make me feel good and that are healthy for me and that are, you know, going to help me have a better life, but I'm also going to not make that into a chore or something I have to do, or I'm going to not going to punish myself. If I don't do it because then it sort of defeats half the purpose of it, but it's a, it um, does. We become, ba- we become bound to it. Yeah. I, I had a, a client who was doing the, you know, the cold therapy, you know, yeah, each yeah. day and they'll get into Wim Hof, which I went down that rabbit hole as well, which I like, by the way, <laughs> yeah, I like, yeah. I still, it's like a tool in the tool belt. So like, you know, yeah. I mightn't do yeah. it for months. Then I just whip it out for a couple of days in a row, you know, but he was like this cold therapy thing. And yeah, one day he's like, oh, I haven't done my cold therapy today. And I'm just, you know, I'm anxious and so-and-so pissed me off. I just need to get home and do it. I'm like, you need to get home and do it. So like, this yeah. is, this is this, you could feel the energy. It's really tight, like really rigid energy. And I think in life, cause I, mine is kind of maybe like unique. My natural inclination is to be like that. Oh, is, to, is to have yeah. this structure. You know, <laughs> this is why my partner's yeah. Melissa has been such an amazing, you know, 
teacher for me is because she ain't like that at all. She's the opposite. So she's taught right. me to, to loosen up, whereas I've kind of taught her to be a little bit more structured when she needs to. So this is how we grow in relationship, which is another topic. But it's like that, okay, I don't need to actually do anything, you yeah. know? And I'm and from that place, I might want to do the cold plunge, but I don't, I don't, I'm not bound to it. I don't need to do it because that's another escape. Oh, totally. It's another escape. And I think when anything as well becomes a thing where something's seen as the be all end all, or, you know, it almost becomes like a cult like thing at that point. It's like there's a lot of these tools are great, but if the tool is in your mind or it's been presented to you as this is the be all end all, this is the method that's going to, you know, solve all your problems. If you just do this, this was what will hurt. It's like, well, no, that's bullshit because, you know, there's a million different things and it's about finding what works for you. And, and it's a never ending process. It's not like one thing's going to solve all your problems. So it's sort of, anyway, that's a whole nother. That's, another that's, thing that's to, our to human nature of, of wanting that quick fix though, isn't it? It's like, it is. I just, please, is there just a pill I can take to make this yeah. go away? Like, nope. <laughs> It's not simple. There's no solution. The, the solution is just to enjoy the moment right now and, you know, do your best at things and, and realize that there literally is no endpoint. The, the end point is to keep learning and keep growing until the day you die and realize that you don't, you, there's no, there's no sort of, you know, finish line. It's just to keep growing and learning. Yeah. People expect that they're going to, you know, become enlightened and I don't know, like dissolve into light at some point. I'm not sure what they expect. <laughs> But, exactly, yeah. but it's like, I'm like, no, no, no. I heard there's a good quote I heard recently that someone says, please don't ever become perfect because you'll have no one else to relate to. And yeah, it's so true. Yeah. We have this idea that we're going to be perfect at some point. If you're human, you're never going to be perfect. And that's fine. It's beautiful, actually. Yeah, so, yeah it's part of life. Yeah. So, so I've got these final questions. These can be just, you know, one line answers, whatever comes to mind. Um, the first one is, what is your best childhood memory that comes to mind? Oh, good question. The one that just popped up for me then, actually, I haven't thought about this in a while, um, was I must have been five or six maybe. So my brother's 14 years older than me. Um, so big age gap there. And, you know, I always looked up to him. He was kind of my hero. And he was great because he, looking back, I didn't appreciate it as much then, but, you know, looking back now, I'm like, I was bugging him all the time. Let's keep the footy. Let's play cricket. You know, let's do right. this. And, like, yeah. you imagine a four-year-old asking an 18-year-old, that can't be much fun for the 18-year-old. But this day, I was bugging him to kick the footy and I remember it was pissing down outside, like belting down rain. And I remember he looked outside and just went, yep, all right, let's do it. And I remember we put our tracky pants and everything on and we went out there for like hours rolling around in the mud, um, tackling each other, trying to kick the footy in the pouring rain. And I came back in. I, mean, I think mum took a picture. I should ask her if she still has it. I've asked just covered in head to toe from mud, holding the footy. But I'm, I just remember how happy and free I felt. Um, I love that, moment. mate. Yeah. I I'm getting it. a little bit yeah. teary thinking about it, actually. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's nice. No, thank you for, for um, sharing it. No, I, I love that question. And, you know, in a lot of the talks I, I do, I, you know, whenever you ask someone to relive something, it, you, you know, I, I could see it on, on you when you're telling that. you. It just, it's, it's a nice, like, gratitude sort of. Um, yeah. Yeah, when we have a any emotional imprint, then it, it will it will stick with that. And that's why, you know, on an emotional level, if someone's thinking back to maybe a, you know, not a joy or grateful, but maybe a more of a, a troubling memory, then all of a sudden the body feels like that's happening again. You know, it's like we're having Absolutely. a dream. If you had a dream that you're getting chased 
And then you wake up and you're like sweating, but you're just, you're just in bed, but your body literally yeah. sweated because it thought it was happening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what would, what do you think is one, or what do you think is the biggest burden on mental health in society at the moment? I mean, there's many or, or, or one of them. Yeah. A lack of understanding on trauma. I know that's kind of my wheelhouse and what I teach on, but I think that the, the fact that we don't understand trauma and how it affects not just mental and emotional health, but physical health as well. Um, I think the understanding of that will really change the way that we, and it's, I think over the next 10 years, you'll see it a lot more. It's going to be, you know, being trauma informed will be a real thing. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm hoping to, to be actually a big part of that in Australia. But um, yeah, I think that's, that's the biggest one, you know, for some people who want to understand about how impactful trauma is, Research the ACE study, so Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. Um, Dr. Vince Folletti um, ran that. Um, an incredible, a study that everyone should know about, but an incredible display of just the effects that trauma has on, on all areas of our health. And I think if we understand that as a society, it's going to have a drastic impact on, on the mental health of, of nations. Yeah, massively. And, and, and that's what I was sort of going to ask is the next thing, you know, do you see things um, improving over the next 10 years and, moving in the right direction, which um, I'm hopeful. I guess you've, yeah. I'm hopeful, but I'm not certain. Um, yeah. Because it, it, when, it, it, like I said, it's become a big focus now, and especially, you know, here in Australia, a lot more money's being put into it, a lot more focus on mental health. That doesn't necessarily mean things get better. Just because we throw money and attention at things, it depends what we start to throw money and attention at. And unfortunately, a lot of the, the negative side of it is just putting this money into more of the same that, that hasn't has got limited results over the last however many decades, just putting more money into that. Um, I see a lot of people, you know, politicians and everything maybe say, oh, well, we need more lived experience, blah, blah, blah. And they'll go and do these big, you know, meetings and town hall meetings and hear from lived experience people, but then not do anything with it and just put more money into the same stuff. Like it's just a bit of a PR yeah. stunt. So I think we're going to need to look at many different avenues because like you said before, like we're all different. People need a menu of options because right now people want to do a mental health care plan and get medication. That's it. Yeah. That has its place on the menu. It's just one small place, what it should be. And there should be this whole other menu of options for people. And I hope that's the direction that we're heading. It's a 10 year anniversary of Underbrax and we've relaunched with the classic white pair. We've also got new styles coming out super soon. We're donating a dollar from every pair to mental health, currently to one in five. You can find all of this at www.underbrax.com. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And we need, you know, we need more people like you doing, you know, digging deep and offering these practical services because you know me being in the space i've seen the exact same thing that you're talking about that a lot of money gets thrown around and it's great that there's awareness and it is great that you know there's more services and money but a lot of it is about platitudes and trying to tick boxes and you know do what's perceived as the right thing uh, or put a band-aid on it rather than hey let's actually look at you know how we can change the infrastructure and really create some proper preventative services that are going to help long term and have that impact so you know, we need more people like you doing well, it, mate. I which couldn't that's agree great. more, Nick. Yeah. Like one of the things I've been, you know, researching on lately is the, you know, a lot of the way that we in our modern era have tackled mental health is all around how quickly can I get someone back to work to feed yeah. this capitalistic machine. And so we, we need a real 
reframe. Getting back to work is important, but it's not the most important thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, absolutely. Um, anyway, we could probably do a whole podcast yeah. just on that topic. Um, <laughs> so I've got two more here. Um, what would you say is your personal definition of happiness? In a piece. Yep. I, I think, think just that one thing, I'll just share this real quick story. One of the moments, the, the exact moment for me when I knew I never needed to use drugs again was this moment in that, that session that I did with Melissa in her office when I really shed back these layers of when I decided that I hated myself. This was at four years old. I decided that I hated myself. But what four-year-old deserves to think that about themselves? But that's not just me. That's a whole lot of people feel that way. And um, all of a sudden I had this moment where everything just went completely quiet in my body and mind. And Melissa asked me, she goes, what's, what's happening now? I have my eyes closed. And I said to her, I'm completely and utterly with myself and there's nowhere else I'd rather be. That's, mm. that's happiness to me. Yeah. There's absolutely no desire to escape this present experience because for decades before that, every moment was about trying to get away from myself. So I think that's, that's happiness. You know, I don't even like the word happiness. I, I like the word peace or being content because um, happiness tends to be a bit of a, a fluff word. It's interesting you ask people like, Stop people on the street. Hey, what do you want out of life? I want to be happy. I want to be happy. What does exactly. happiness mean to you? I don't know. <laughs> or, or, or it might mean something, you know, that like what we were talking about, you know, it might mean uh, happiness means achieving blah, blah, blah. Want to win the lottery. Do, doing all these things that aren't going to do. And that's why I asked that question to everyone. What's your definition of happiness? To try and, you know, show our listeners, well, happiness, you know, the way, the meaning we've put around that happiness isn't, you know, this um, hit of dopamine or this exciting drug-like thing. Happiness, exactly how you described it in that story you just gave, happiness is feeling that contentment, not, not that, oh, I'm going to protect myself from feeling um, emotions and I'm going to stop myself from having all these lows and I need to be, you know, just having amazing things happen all the time. That We're going to have ups and downs, but happiness is I know no matter what happens, I'm enough. and. Yeah. That's all it is. And then, because yeah. that's, a, that's a superpower, you know, that if you, there's not many things that can happen that you can't handle if you feel that, if you get oh, yourself Absolutely. That. That's, that's such a great point, Nick. And I love you even said, like, we can feel inner peace and content even if we're experiencing deep sadness, you yeah. know, if we're experiencing yeah. deep grief, you know, we can still, if we can still hold space for that because we're in, we're taught at a young age to have aversion to negative emotions and a craving for the positive ones. And this starts this whole, you know, yeah. addiction cycle. But, you know, when we find that inner peace, then we can, sadness is fine. Joy is fine. Grief is fine. It's, it's all fine, you know, because we've yeah. got, well, we've got that solid foundation and it's not happiness ain't out here. It's in here, yeah? And then all of a sudden someone goes, well, I can't feel it. Okay, well, now that's your path. The path is unpacking. Why can't I access that inner peace and happiness right now? And then we have these layers that we've built up, these walls around our heart based on what we've been through in our life. Absolutely, mate. And just as a final point on that, you know, the the other side of it is not is also not saying, because, you know, then people will argue, well, okay, I may as well just do nothing then because if... Um, if feeling inner peace is the solution, then why don't I just sit in a room and do nothing and give up on living a life? And it's like, no, it's about having that, but still working out what your values are, what you want to achieve, what you want to do, being ambitious, but not being attached to it. You know, yeah. so then you, and the ironic thing is you're, 
you're going to achieve more if you can live in that anyway, because you're going to be more sustainable. You're going to make smarter decisions. You're going to do it for the right reason. You know, it's like the, the byproduct of it is you probably have more success. It, yeah. And it's, that's hard for people to get their head around because I hear the same thing as well. Oh, I'm just going to yeah. sit in a room and do nothing. I'm like, no, you won't. <laughs> it's, this is weird, it's this weird thing. It's like, no, you won't because you're a human and you're going to engage with life. Even sitting in a room doing nothing, you're still engaging with life. You know, yeah, yeah. So it's like, am I in survival or am I in creation? Now, most yeah. people are in survival, yeah? Survive, 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 fear, fear, fear. What's next? What's next? What do I need to get? If you're in it within a piece, then you engage with life from a place of creation. So it's like, I wonder what's going to happen today. I wonder what, what I'm going to experience today. So even, you know, catching up with a coffee for a friend or having a walk along the beach or whatever it is, it's from a place of creation all of a sudden you'll find that you start like meeting new people and having new experiences you know if i pass someone on the beach out here i'm like hey how you doing start talking to them but if i'm in survival i'm like don't they're going to judge me they're not going to like me so actually i actually limit my experience of life when we find that in a piece then we actually engage with life more fully we don't just (laughs) sit in a room and do nothing yeah absolutely i love no i i love the way you've described that as well and you know it's such a such a good way of putting it. Um, so final one, uh, there's many, I mean, you've told me many of these um, in your story and what you've described today when we've chatted, but what would you say is the most courageous thing you've done? Most courageous thing I've done, I think, I think going ahead and starting our business, yeah, at the time, I'm someone who always... I would let other people's opinions sway me. I would justify it as my own, but other people would say, hey, you shouldn't do that, even though I wanted to. And then later on, my thoughts would go, yeah, you shouldn't do that, and I wouldn't, which would, like we spoke about, limit life. But when we started the business, you know, I hadn't been clean that long. It was a big risk. I was, at the time, like, I'm changing the way people see addiction and mental health. I'm going for it. And I had a lot of people who really cared about me, and it it was from a place of love and caring. He said, you know, should you maybe not do that or not do that yet? You know, you should be focusing on your recovery. And um, despite all that, um, I said, I, I, I respect that, but I'm, I'm doing it anyway. And so, you know, I think that was the best. And putting myself out there, you know, starting to do videos, opening up about my story. Um, you know, we would go in when we first started to doctors' clinics who would basically walk out, walk out, walk out on us you know, shut the door in our face and that kind of thing. But we kept, we kept going, you know, and I think that that was probably the most courageous thing I've done because a lot of people were saying, hey, you shouldn't do that. And I had a history of believing other people, but I believed myself this time. Yeah. And that's, yeah. and that's meant that I've trusted myself from that day forward. Oh, yeah, mate. I think it's incredibly courageous. And, you know, it's helped me even listening to your story and you tell me that. And um, I think it's an amazing thing what you've done and are achieving and, I think a big lesson for people from this as well is, you know, it's okay to follow your gut and listen to listen to what your, your intuition's telling you because we've got noise all around us. Um, but I think if we really want to listen to it, we all know deep down what the right decision is for us. So if you can let let go of everything else and just listen to that, you're, it might be scary, but you're going to make decisions that are in line with what you truly want and that's going to lead to, you know, positive outcomes. Yeah, good advice, Nick. So true. And like you said, it will bring up fear, but I think the word you used was, was courage or it was the most courageous thing you've done. And courage isn't 
doing something brave and not feeling fear. It's when we feel fear that we do it anyway because we know exactly. deep down it's like, I know this is what I'm meant to do. Totally. Yeah, you can't avoid fear, but, you know, you do it anyway because it means something to you, which is yeah. so important to understand. Yeah. Um, so finally, where, where can people go if they want to find out more about you and the work you're doing? I'll put this in the show notes as well, but, uh, yeah, where can, where can we send them? Uh, just the Centre for Healing. So just check us out, Facebook, Instagram. I think we're on TikTok now. I don't know, our social media person. It's all the kids or I'm not on it, but um, I think we're on TikTok. But yeah, mainly Instagram, yeah. Facebook, and our, you can get to our website through there, but the website's courses.centerforhealing.com.au. But if, I, I think that's right. But if you go through the social medias, you'll find it. And um, yeah, we have courses on, on trauma and addiction, families of addiction, um, philosophies on mental health, and, and we have two practitioner trainings, root cause therapy, and embodied processing which is a somatic based therapy to help unpack a lot of this stuff so yeah check that out and then um yeah shoot us a message on the social medias if you have any questions or maybe you wanted to ask something after hearing me chat today but um yeah, you can reach out there awesome well yeah as i said we'll have that in the show notes and again mate you know it's been so good reconnecting with you thank you so much for for making the time i genuinely you know, love chatting to you and love hearing about all the work you're doing because I think it's it really is incredible. Your story is amazing and the work you're doing and you're impacting people's lives. So I think it's such a great example for everyone listening of, uh, you know, the, what you can what you can do and what you can overcome. So I just, yeah, want to say again, thanks for making the time to sit here and, and talk about that with me. Awesome, Nick. No, I, I received that fully and, uh, yeah, right back at you, mate. Appreciate you and the work you do and, um, Look forward to talking more in the future and I'm looking forward to reading your book. Appreciate it, mate. Thanks to Ryan Hassan for joining me today for Move Your Mind. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to moveyourmind.me or you can purchase the Move Your Mind book at nickbrax.com slash book. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.